0: Mark Stein Show. And now, here's
1: Mark. Hey, welcome along. It is June the ninth. 11 a.m. Eastern in North America, midday in the Maritimes, half past noon in Newfoundland, 4 p.m. in London, 5 p.m. in Paris, 6 p.m. in Jerusalem, wherever you are. This is the Mark Stein Show live uh, around the planet because we're doing a sort of special hybrid, a kind of COVID double mutation uh, version of the Mark Stein Show in, in which we've mutated it with our Clubland Q&A to do a live Stein Show taking lots of your questions but uh, throwing in a few of the regular Stein Show features as well. So coming up we'll have Babe Ruth in jail, George Harrison in your tent, Justin Trudeau in the Royal Suite at the Fairmont but above all we have your questions. Uh, Let's get to it. Eric Dale says, hey Mark, this past month, we've come to learn that rather than being a debunked conspiracy theory, it's actually quite likely that COVID-19 escaped from a lab located in the middle of a city of 11 million people. What's really disturbing to me is the fact that me we may well have been subsidising it the whole time. According to an article from the Daily Mail because uh, you have to go to Fleet Street to get any meaningful news about America these days. According to an article from the Daily Mail, the Pentagon and USAID, which is the United States Agency for International Development, (laughs) China's the dominant power on the planet, but uh, somehow for the purposes of USAID, it still counts as a developing nation. If it develops any (laughs) more... There's not going to be room for any of the other 199 nations on the planet. Anyway, the Pentagon and USAID gave federal money to the Chinese to engage in gain-of-function research that makes viruses more contagious and dangerous. Yes, even if you thought it was a good idea to make viruses more contagious and dangerous would you outsource it to the Chinese? Um, An idea whose risks outweigh its rewards, says Eric, that only an expert could think to be a good idea. When and where do these experts of ours and the entrenched governing class actually come through for the rest of us? Or are we condemned to limp from one crisis to another because our best and brightest may actually be Addicted to crises. Yes, you make an an interesting point. When this all started to shift a couple of weeks ago, um, uh, I guess it was around May the twentieth, something like that. That it that suddenly something that was banned by Facebook and uh, was uh, an official conspiracy theory on Wikipedia, misinformation, it came on their COVID misinformation page, suddenly became acceptable and viable. And actually, in terms of the, the science, uh, there was very little that was surprising about... I mean, there were, there were actually no new revelations. Most of what we now know... Uh, With regard to Wuhan's, the Wuhan Institute of Virology and the COVID, uh, we've known for months, uh, most of the last year, there's been no new information. All that has changed is officialdom's attitude to that information. And what I find interesting, oh, and the point you make, that uh, in fact, and it's more, again, we knew, we've known for months that. Uh, the United States government has given taxpayers' dollars to the Wuhan Institute of Virology uh, to conduct this kind of research. Now, all that was known. I don't. The only things that are new to me. I don't know how it is for you, Eric, or for anybody else. The only thing that is new for me is the degree of bureaucratic obstruction. Uh, from within the Trump administration to any consideration of the lab leak theory. And senior Trump officials who got into the lab leak theory, um, for example, Robert Redfield, the uh, chap who heads the Centers for Disease Control, after he told CNN that he thought COVID-19 had originated in a lab, he got death threats. Death threats, by the way, not from crazy uh, guys on Twitter or whatever. He got death threats from fellow scientists. And I think that's that's really the only new thing that has emerged, is the fact that basically the United States government and the Wuhan Institute of Virology uh, are Siamese twins. They're joined at the hip uh they uh it'd be it might be better if they were joined at the brain but they don't appear to be have a brain between them the if you're only going to read one piece on this and i say that with a caveat which i'm going to come to in a moment read the vanity fair piece which is written like a sort of thriller but what's interesting is that the united states has the most lavishly funded uh, bureaucracy in the world and for um uh, for uh, whatever reason, they basically, at some point late spring last year, they decided they were all going to lose any interest in where COVID-19 came from. So you have this lavishly funded bureaucracy that did bugger all. Uh, and it was left to people, it was left basically to to uh, cranky Uh, bloggers in Australia, uh, in France, the Paris, the Paris group has been actually quite excellent, Uh, genuinely inquisitive scientists, and as the Vanity Fair piece puts it, somebody in eastern India, whatever that means, uh, I take it uh, it is somewhere in the present nation of India, but in uh, an eastern part, I don't know why they couldn't have... uh, perhaps identified it more precisely but the the person in eastern India who just went on Chinese websites ran it through uh, Google Translate and came up with this stuff about the uh, the 50% death rate of miners who'd been clearing out a giant pile of bat guano uh, in a uh, in a cave about 10 years ago and, and so anyway all this stuff is being done Oh, and then we get to the idea that, you know, this is a BSL-4, which is supposed to be the highest level um, uh, security lab. Uh, And of course, the Wuhan Institute of Virology isn't a lab, it's a bazillion labs, because it's Chinese and everything's big. And so they got one lab, which I think opened a year or two back, that is BSL-4. Everything else is BSL-3, or BSL-2, which is basically the uh, same level of protection as when you go to your dentist and you're in his room and in the chair. I'm, I'm being serious here. BSL-2 is about the level of your dentist's room. Um, and as I said, the, the caveat about the Vanity Fair piece, which is actually quite well reported in some ways, uh, the car, and it gets to the fact that the the piece in the Lancet saying it's nothing to do with the lab was a racket gotten up by this uh, season's mysterious uh, British subject. Uh, who, who, uh, whose principal business partner is the Wuhan Institute. I mean, the level of corruption here is. But the, the thing about the. The thing you get when you read the Vanity Fair piece is they're trying very hard to say that this theory that it escaped from Wuhan would be taken much more seriously if it hadn't been embraced by Donald Trump. And of course, the minute Donald Trump embraced this theory that it had escaped from a lab in Wuhan, then obviously it became totally racist and no serious scientist could be seen to go anywhere near it. That's what this lady writing in Vanity Fair says. Uh, Quote, And yet, in the wake of the Lancet statement, and under the cloud of Donald Trump's toxic racism, which contributed to an alarming wave of anti-Asian violence in the U.S., (laughs) again, Whenever you see any of this anti-Asian violence in the US, it's always some black guy sucker punching a little Asian lady. But all these black guys are amazingly hardcore QAnon Trumpists. Uh, Anyway, uh, in the wake of the Lancet statement and under the cloud of Donald Trump's toxic racism, which contributed to an alarming wave of anti-Asian violence in the US, one possible answer to this all-important question, i.e., the lab leak theory remained largely off limits until the spring of 2021. So she's working very hard to make us believe that it was because Trump embraced the lab leak theory and Trump is a toxic racist and Trump drives all these black people to beat up little Chinese ladies all over America. Because of that, nobody could go near, could, could go near the lab leak theory. And I wish it were that obvious in a way. It were that crude that, oh, I hate Trump, so anything Trump says, I believe the opposite. I wish that were true. But actually, if you decode this piece and you read it carefully, you realize they're using Trump derangement syndrome, as it were, as a cover for the reality, which is that uh, key agencies of the United States government and uh, when one looks at the broader environment, some of the most respected uh, peer-reviewed journals on the planet, you can put that in quote marks because I know from my Michael Mann case what bollock's peer review is. Um, but if you look at uh, but, uh, but if you decode the piece and you read it carefully, you realize that basically, Key agencies of the United States government are basically in bed with the Chinese, as are so many of these research institutes, peer-reviewed journals, and all the rest of it. So we're basically uh, talking about... It would be nice if it was just that they hated Trump. It would be simple. Uh, you could say, that's pathetic. Yeah, you, you, you're trying to tell us, as this piece is that if Trump says something, even if it's true, you must oppose it because Trump is a toxic racist. But it's worse than that. It's worse than that. Um, That would be stupid. But being stupid is better than being corrupt uh, and in bed with an evil totalitarian regime, which is what... uh, large numbers of these guys appear to do. China, for example. Did you know this? The, the two most respected scientific publications of the planet are science and nature. Uh, one's American and one's British. I mean, sort of. Sort of British. I don't know whether... Well, at any rate, it's principal... The principal foreign sponsor, government sponsor of peer-reviewed journals now is China. Hmm? Did you know that? It's all, the life is full of fascinating details. It turns out, you know, we must respect the science. We must respect the science. This science brought to you by the Politburo of the People's Republic of China. That's the world we're living in now. Uh, Eric Dale uh, asked uh, that question. Let's see what else uh, we, I mean, that is some, that is what's, uh, was the only thing that was new to me about all this actually, was the level, the hollowing out I mean, one knew that a, a certain amount of it had been going on, um, but the degree to which it's been going on is uh, is, what's, is the only revelation. Otherwise, on the science alone, uh, the lab leak theory should have prevailed a year ago. Todd Lewis writes, hello, Mark. If one takes your books and commentary together as a whole, you're left with the impression that our culture is on an irreversible trend line of ideological and demographic ruin. Do you really believe the decay we face to be irreversible? If not, what would you say would be fundamentally necessary to setting our culture back on a healthy, creative, and productive track? Well, one thing we can do is is, uh, tell the truth about everything. Tell the truth about small things and big things. Every time you stay quiet because you want a quiet life, uh, whether it's a proposal to get rid of something at your school board or whatever, you enable uh, you you're you're making a small contribution to the apparatus of lies which is destroying Western civilization. Now, I don't th- think any trend line is irreversible. And as I always say, I think I said it in America alone, all the greatest stories in the world are about a minority. Uh, that prevails in the face of overwhelming odds. Just give me ten who are stout-hearted men, and I'll soon show you ten thousand more. Nelson, Eddy in uh, what, what what the hell was that? Was it the New Moon? It's the one where he's uh, uh, where uh, <laughs> Jeanette MacDonald tells him, "You can't fight the entire French army." And he says, uh, just give me 10 who are stout-hearted men and I'll soon show you 10,000 more. We need 10 uh, stout-hearted men and we'd soon have 10,000 more. It's never about the numbers. It wasn't, and just in case you think my Nelson (laughs) Eddy is not the best example, it was true in the American Revolution, by the way, which is why uh, the overwhelming majority of New York State, for example, were loyalists, which is why they fled across Lake Ontario uh, and settled along what is now the Empire Loyalist Parkway uh, from wherever it is through Kingston to Cornwall or wherever it runs across the north shore of Lake Ontario. Uh, The American Revolution wasn't about a majority. That's not it's the energy. And this is where people are surprised sometimes. Who are the dominant forces in our society? Right. The trans lobby. How many how many actual trans people do you think there are? Uh, they've got the energy when the so-called silent majority is happy to watch Ellen reruns or Dancing with the Stars or whatever it is. Um, so it's never, it's never about the numbers. So the demography is not necessarily decisive, Todd. Um, but it does require that. Uh, we stop making these small concessions every day of our life, because that is beginning to drive, uh, well, it's not beginning to drive me bonkers, it's been driving me bonkers for ages, as to quote myself for the umpteenth time, unless you're prepared to surrender everything, surrender nothing. Uh, Rich Lowry, my old boss at National Review, when he goes, oh, well, yes, we're not really, we we don't really want to defend uh, Jefferson Davis and Robert E. Lee, but if they ever come for a lincoln and washington and you can bet we'd be there really i don't hear a peep actually you maybe you should have drawn the line at uh, jefferson davis and robert e lee i don't even know who they are i'm a bloody foreigner i don't care about them not my civil war but i do know uh that it is a sign of a barbarian culture uh to tear down statues uh, and that's what Rich—that's the position Rich Lowry should have taken, too. Anyway, it's a combined Clubland Q&A and Mark Stein show. We've never done that. We've never just torn up the format. We've never done a Wuhan Institute of Virology show like this where we just take elements that shouldn't be in proximity to each other and throw them into the same Bunsen burner just for the hell of it to see what happens before we uh, go for the bat special at the wet market. But that's what we are doing today, and we will be back uh, to take more of your questions in just a minute.
0: The Mark Stein Show presents Andrew Lawton's Canadian Content.
2: Thank you, Mark. And after 15 months of Canadians being pretty well locked down and told to shelter in place and not dare leave the country, people are getting moving again. Well, one person, anyway. Fifteen months later, Justin Trudeau was stepping back onto the world stage, meeting in person with other leaders at a key time. Yes, this week, Justin Trudeau and his entourage are off to the United Kingdom for the G7 Summit. In-person diplomacy is coming back. Those hours-long Zoom calls have apparently been as grating for world leaders as they have been for the rest of us. This is Justin Trudeau's first time leaving the country since February 2020, and while most Canadians might be hoping he stays there, he is entitled as a Canadian citizen to return. But unlike the rest of us, Justin Trudeau and his crew are actually exempt from quarantining in the state-mandated hotel program that the government set up to discourage inbound travel. That program was actually the subject of a constitutional challenge in court last week, though, as is the nature of these things, it will be weeks or months before a decision is issued. This is the program that the Liberals put in place earlier this year, just before Canadians were thinking they might want to go away for the winter. In a nutshell, when you fly into Canada, you are forced to quarantine in a government-approved facility at your own expense, costing thousands of dollars and with no real guarantee of security. Not only have people contracted COVID at these COVID hotels, people that otherwise would have been negative as they carried on their merry way to home, but a woman was actually sexually assaulted at one of these facilities in Montreal in which the locks had been taken off the door. Despite carving an exemption into this for politicians, it seems Justin Trudeau thought that even he could not overcome the bad optics of skipping out on hotel quarantine when he enters Canada after hobnobbing with world leaders in the UK and Belgium. So he's decided to offer a bit of a concession. He'll quarantine in a hotel, but not the hotels that the rest of Canadians are going into. He's setting up his own. A special hotel in Ottawa will be converted just to serve as a quarantine facility for Justin Trudeau and his crew. Conservative Member of Parliament Michelle Rempel-Garner put forward a motion in the House of Commons saying that Justin Trudeau should have to quarantine at one of the government-approved accommodations like the rest of Canadians, but to no avail. The insult to injury in all of this is that the federal government is simply going through the motions at this point. They know it doesn't work. Last week, the government's expert advisory panel on the quarantine and border restrictions put forward a report saying this hotel quarantine should be scrapped. And the government has decided to not take the report's recommendations, despite it being the body that commissioned the report. And Chrystia Freeland, who is Trudeau's deputy prime minister and finance minister, was meeting with her counterparts at the G7 finance minister's meeting. And in the official photo of the event, taken outside with significant social distancing between participants, Freeland is the only finance minister wearing a mask. And what better way to sum up the Canadian experience right now? A partially vaccinated finance minister whose colleagues are all getting back to normal in their own countries but remains the lone masker at a global summit. But it isn't because she is a true believer. No, no. Photos taken seconds before the official photo show her scrambling to put on the mask just so people see her wearing it. That also happened at a press conference Freeland held days earlier where she scrambled in the seconds before her press conference began to put on a mask only to take it off once the cameras were rolling. At a certain point, all of this is propaganda. Even those enforcing these measures don't buy into them, but expect the rest of us to go along with them. Could there be hope on the horizon? Well, Bloomberg headline has a story that says Canada is set to relax quarantine rules for vaccinated travelers. Now, not many Canadians fit the bill because of Justin Trudeau's mishandling of vaccine procurement, but could it be that the hotel quarantine is soon dead? Well, the devil is in the details. As the story reports, travelers entering Canada would still be tested for the virus and may be required to quarantine, but for a shorter period. There is no end in sight to Canada's permanent emergency as the rest of the world gets back to normal. Back to you, Mark.
1: This is Mark Stein, inviting you to this week's Song of the Week on Serenade Radio. It regularly tops polls as the best song of the 20th century, the best movie song of all time. And yet the studio boss and the producer and the director all wanted to junk it, and the music publisher hated it, and the lyricist thought the tune was all wrong. Somehow it survived all that and a multitude of tragedy. Hope you'll join me for Stein's Song of the Week, Sunday afternoon at 5.30. Yes, that's uh, 5.30 United Kingdom time, which is... uh Uh, 12.30 North American Eastern Time, uh, 9.30 on the West Coast, so it's a Sunday brunchy kind of show if you're in the Western Hemisphere, but you can uh, listen to it if you're in the Western Hemisphere. You just go to uh, serenade-radio.com. and uh, click on the button in the top right-hand corner. Dan Phillips said, f- says, first of all, my wife and I tuned into your brand spanking new Serenade Radio UK show this past Sunday. Song of the week. Oh my God, what a bloody blockbuster you selected. Stardust or Stardust. Two words, as it was initially called, because until that song, there was no such word as Stardust. Uh, I was hoping and praying for my favorite uh, Mel Torme version, but the finale with Nat Cole and that unbelievable instrumental opening. That's Gordon Jenkins uh, arranging that. Um, The lyricist's favourite version, yes, that's right, it was Mitchell Parrish's favourite version, that Nat King Cole one, could easily have brought tears to one's eyes and a worldwide audience to boot. Well, if you missed uh, Stardust, unlike Dan, Dan uh, was there for that Stardust show, uh, don't miss this week's song coming up Sunday, 5.30 London time, uh, 12.30 Eastern time, uh, 9.30 on uh, the West Coast, California and British Columbia. And if you're in Australia, you might be advised to wait for the Monday repeat, which is lunchtime in Western Australia and uh, early Monday afternoon in Sydney and Melbourne. But that's uh, just a preamble because Dan also says, secondly, have you ever considered a one-on-one video discussion with Victor Davis Hansen? Now, that would be a blockbuster as well. Well, I've interviewed Victor um, on uh, Fox News Primetime and Tucker Carlson tonight uh, and maybe even Hannity. Anyway, several times over the years, I've interviewed Victor Hither and Yon, but I think you're, you want something more than just a three or four minute uh, telly hit. You want a big in-depth uh, hour and a half. And uh, we'll, we'll uh, take that uh, under consideration. Uh, we have had a, a question about whether... Um, we are too restricted in the kind of people who get on to uh, cable news. Saber Mike Carroll says, Mark, uh, just passed my one year anniversary of becoming a Mark Stein Club member, and it's one of the best decisions I've ever made. I'm thrilled Uh, You feel that way, Mike, Uh, and we're glad to have you with us, and I really should have brought along Hatcheturian and the Sabre Dance, just for you, Sabre Mike. Hatcheturian Gesundheit. So here's an observation, question. Why is it that the chief conservative media outlets, and one in particular, that shall remain nameless, would never in a million years allow people like Steve Saylor, David Cole, the Derb, uh, that's uh, John Derbyshire, and countless others to appear on air? Why do they accept the leftist view that people such as that are beyond the pale? Why do they continue to allow the left to dictate who and what is acceptable? I know it's because they are cowards, but as Thomas Sowell once said, in a battle between the cowards and the barbarians, the barbarians will always win, and right now the barbarians are most definitely winning. The thing about this, Mike, is that the people who are on TV tend to be the people who are on TV. They have a facility for it, which is not to be despised because uh, I was referencing those three or four minute cable news hits. They're actually quite hard to do. And, you know, you're getting discursive and you're warming to your theme and the director is barking in your ear, rap, rap, rap. And many people who are brilliant authors, great thinkers, finest minds on the planet don't respond well to some director barking rap in your ear when you've just gotten going uh, as you think of it. But in fact, your three-minute hit is up. The people who are on TV, uh, the people who are on TV. And I've done this, I've been, you know, I've been in... radio since I was 14, telly since I was 18. I've been economist since I was 21. Um, They're different skills and some people who are good at one or two of them are not necessarily good at the third. Now for example I always make a point to Steve Saylor whom you mentioned. I always make a point of crediting Steve Saylor uh, when I cite uh, that graph he used to uh, say say was the most important graph in the world, for example, showing the explosion in the coming decades in um, sub-Saharan Africa. So if you if you think there's a problem on the Rio Grande right now, uh, you should check out what the Mediterranean's going to be like in 15 to 20 years time because somewhere like Niger which can't support the population it's got right now its population is going to multiply by six before the end of the century and I talk about that graph uh, once in a while I've talked about it on Rush uh, and I always make a point of crediting Steve Saylor and I have no idea why uh, and, and I, I understand I read Steve Saylor and I hear a lot of other people respectable people far more respectable than me, allude, allude without crediting him to some point that Steve Saylor's uh, brought up from time to time. So I do, I, I, with him in particular, I have no idea why he's beyond the pale. The only reason John Derbyshire is beyond the pale is because the aforementioned Rich Lowry Decided to fire him. One of the interesting things about John is that he knows an awful lot. He has a wide frame of reference, so he's enjoyable to read because you learn things you didn't know when you read him. So he was actually a loss uh, to National Review, um, and in that case, I I tend to agree with the point you're making. I mean, I don't know whether I find it hard. I mean, I know John, for example, doesn't like talk radio. He didn't like Rush and uh, the Rush Limbaugh show. It's not his bag, and I can't see why he'd be any good at it. Um, but I, I, I think what's more telling is that he was at a relatively mainstreamish publication in, in Conservative World, National Review, and he was bounced out of that uh, to publications that are fringier. And that, I do think, makes the point that you and Thomas Sowell are making. In a battle between the cowards and the barbarians, the barbarians will always win. You know, um, courage is a debased word in our society because, you know, uh, if you wake up in the morning and decide you want to be a woman, that's incredibly courageous, you know. So if you do what uh, Bruce Jenner did when Bruce announced... Uh, that he was going to become Caitlyn, uh, then uh, you'll be called by uh, presidents and vice presidents and all kind. Of, you'll you'll be fated, but courage uh, doesn't. There's courage can be something as the left is is correct in a way to locate courage uh, somewhere as minimal as that. Because courage these days doesn't demand that you storm the beaches of Normandy. All courage demands is that you don't curl up into a fetal position because some nincompoops on Twitter have got it in for you. I mean, compared to what almost any generation in human history has had to go through that's that ought to be a courage that most of us can muster because for one thing all those people on twitter represent are, are, are an entirely unrepresentative sliver of society um and if we don't we can't i i don't this is I, this is where ba- basically it's like hoping you'll let me see if i can put this in american terms without <laughs> <laughs> resorting to a rugby or cricket analogy but um this is like thinking you can win the Super Bowl by letting the other side pick your team uh this there's far too much of just giving her you know Tommy Lauren I've got nothing against uh, Tommy Lauren she's a uh, uh, I think I had a brief exchange with her once at uh, when I happened to be in Los Angeles at Fox and we had a little bit of a chat don't really know her um, she's uh, very talented and, uh, and all the rest of it but Tommy Lawrence said something I I just don't understand why you do this. She said that Black Lives Matter started with noble aims, but alas it's now become uh, perverted and distorted and so. Black Lives Matter never had any noble aims. Why concede something like that? It's not true. Why not just say it was a racket from 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 the moment they decided to go that route? It was a racket. It was it was designed to box Uh, people into a corner uh, as it has done evidently with uh, all these people who say oh well yes it started with noble aims but now that the uh the uh the chairperson of black lives matter has got seven multi-million dollar homes i'm not so sure about it you know why why even why say oh it started with noble aims it's not true you don't really believe it why you know why concede half the turf uh, that's, uh, that's, uh, my, uh, view of that. This is a, oh, look at the time. It's 26 minutes to the top of the hour. It's like my uh, old disc jockey days. 26, uh, minutes to, uh, the top of the hour. Let's check traffic on the DVP. No, wait a minute. No, I'm uh, reverting to when I was a teenager. Uh, we are going to take, it's a combined mutated Wuhan Institute of Virology, uh, test tube melange of a show, half the Mark Stein Show, half a Clubland Q&A, and we will be back uh, to take more of your questions momentarily. Keep
0: up to date with the past
1: on the 100 Years Ago Show with Mark Stein. A king in battle, the Irish Bolshevik Alliance, and a Michigan mosque that looks like a mosque. It's June 1921. A hundred years from today. Your World News Update. The messy aftermath of the Great War continues. British and French troops in the disputed region of Upper Silesia have created a temporary buffer zone to keep apart the German and Polish populations. Until the World War, the Grand Duchy of Luxembourg enjoyed the protection of Germany. That's not worth much anymore, so Grand Duchess Charlotte has now accepted Belgian protection. Luxembourg has integrated its railways with Belgium, abolished customs with the neighbouring kingdom, and adopted as its currency the Belgian franc. The US Red Cross has been busy in China... But its famine relief program there is now complete. As a result, in a ceremony at Yuchengsang Sang in Shantung province, the Americans have transferred 400 miles of paved roads to the ownership of the Chinese government. King Constantine of Greece has left Athens in order personally to lead his troops in battle against Turkey in the campaign to defend Smyrna.
0: Everybody loves a baby, that's why I'm in love with you, pretty baby, pretty baby. And I'd like to be your sister, brother, dad and mother too, pretty baby. Pretty baby, won't you come and let me rock you in my cradle of love, and we'll cuddle all the time. Oh, I want a love and baby, and it might as well be you pretty
1: baby of mine in less turbulent news from greece the royal family has a pretty baby of its own brand new born on the dining room table of mon repos a villa on the isle of corfu his name is prince philip of greece and denmark and he is the nephew of King Constantine. If you'd like to be his mother, sister, dad, and brother too, well, three-quarters of those positions are taken by their royal highnesses, Prince and Princess Andrew, and his four older sisters. But he has as yet no brother. These are lively times in southeastern Europe, and it is unclear who will emerge on top. Romania and the new kingdom of Serbs, Croats and Slovenes have signed a mutual assistance pact. Mutual assistance is breaking out all over. The British government has published the text of a letter and a draft of what appears to be a proposed treaty between Irish Republicans and the government of Soviet Russia. According to Prime Minister Lloyd George's office, prominent Sinn Féiner Patrick McCartan is working with an American lawyer to negotiate the aid of the Bolsheviks for the present revolutionary uprising in Ireland. Meanwhile, in Belfast, the new parliament of Northern Ireland is now in session. 40 of the 52 members, all unionists, have been sworn in. The other 12 are absent, as they refused to take the oath of allegiance to the Crown. In Dublin, there is no quorum for the Parliament of Southern Ireland. Patrick Marr and Edmund Foley have been hanged at Mountjoy Prison for murder, notwithstanding an appeal for clemency by the father of one of the Royal Irish Constabulary men they killed, Sergeant Peter Wallace. Marr and Foley issued a joint statement before they went to the gallows. Fight on, struggle on, for the honour, glory and freedom of dear old Ireland. Our hearts go out to all our dear old friends. Our souls go to God at seven o'clock in the morning and our bodies, when Ireland is free, shall go to Galbally. In the United States, President Harding's administration is committed to fiscal responsibility and government efficiency. So it has created two new federal bureaucracies to handle those matters, the General Accounting Office and the Bureau of the Budget. The Secretary of State, Charles Evans Hughes, has informed Mexico's President Obregón that the Harding administration will not recognize his government until Mexico agrees to discharge its international obligations. The Panamanian Foreign Minister, Senor Garay, is in Washington to protest the U.S. settlement of the Panama and Costa Rica border — which he regards as unjust to Panama. America is going crazy for all things Mohammedan. E.M. Hull's steamy novel The Sheik continues to fly off bookstore shelves. The photoplay adaptation will be on the silver screen in the autumn, starring Agnes Ayres and the sensational new leading man of the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse, Rudolf Valentina. And in the cabarets at vaudeville houses, there are multiple songs about those Arab lovers. Mohammedan songs, Mohammedan cinema, Mohammedan bodice rippers, and now an authentically Mohammedan house of worship. Hitherto, American practitioners of the Islamic faith have had to content themselves with makeshift mosques in buildings converted from other purposes. But now, in the Detroit suburb of Highland Park, Muslim workers at Henry Ford's Motor Company will be able to worship in the first American mosque consistent with the architectural traditions of their religion, with a dome and minarets, just as in Cairo or Mecca. The new mosque is just 100 yards from the Model T factory and was built by the Syrian Ford worker, now a real estate developer, Mohammed Karob. Everybody is motoring now. Frederick Galbraith, National Commander of the American Legion, was driving in Indianapolis when his motor car went over an embankment. He is dead at the age of 47. Babe Ruth of the New York Yankees is the highest paid Major League Baseball player, so he can no doubt shrug off the $100 he was fined for speeding in his automobile. He was stopped for motoring at 26 miles per hour on a city highway. The home-run king was more surprised, however, when the magistrate ordered him to jail. Babe Ruth was confined to his cell at 11.30 in the morning. He was released at 4 in the afternoon, 40 minutes, before he was scheduled to bat for the Yankees at the polo grounds. (laughs) Also in sports news, the Torreador Ernesto Pastor is dead at 29 at a bullfight in Madrid. He was gored by the bull in his leg and bled profusely. The hemorrhage caused him to go blind. The torero's last words were, who turned out the lights? Harold Harris, a test pilot with the US Army Air Service, has become the first man to fly a pressurised aeroplane. That's to say, a plane that is both safe and comfortable to fly at high altitudes because conditioned air has been pumped into it. Sitting in his pressurised cockpit, Lieutenant Harris took his Dayton Wright USD 9A up into the sky and brought it down again safely. Do you find those three-act plays go on a bit long for your taste? If so, you'll love Tristan Zara's new piece, Le Coeur de Gaz, The Gas Heart, which received its world premiere at a Dada art exhibition at the Galerie Montaigne in Paris. It's a three-act play but much shorter than most one-act plays. Unfortunately, as is the want of these Dadaists, it's also deeply impenetrable. A collection of non-sequiturs punctuated by short ballets and performed by characters named after facial features such as nose and eyebrow. Sample dialogue, The Void drinks the void. Air was born with blue eyes. That's why it endlessly swallows aspirin. You may need a couple yourself. More controversial art. D.H. Lawrence's new novel, Women in Love, has been published in London. The reviewer, W. Charles Pilly, says, I know dirt when I smell it. And here was dirt in heaps, festering putrid heaps, which smell to high heaven. I'm alone, lovely,
0: looking for a stay, if the right one says our word, I won't hesitate, when she comes flying my way, here's what I'm going to say, first love of ever, just you and I,
1: A lot of birds are of a feather, which is why the Danish ornithologist from the island of Zealand, Hans Christian Cornelius Mortensen, invented the system of bird ringing, cutting rings from a sheet of aluminium, stamping each with a number, and then attaching each ring to over 6,000 birds. His system has been adopted by ornithologists worldwide. Mr. Mortensen is dead at 64. Luis Maria Drago was the Argentine foreign minister who wrote to Theodore Roosevelt during the Venezuelan blockade by European nations seeking to collect debts owed by that South American country. Senor Drago proposed an addition to the Monroe Doctrine to prohibit the use of force for debt collection in the Western Hemisphere. President Roosevelt agreed and said that foreign powers must henceforth seek US aid in resolving debt issues rather than simply sending the gunboats. Luis Maria Drago is dead at 62. In 1898, Louis de Rougemont, claimed in the London press that he had been living among Australian cannibals and their flying wombats for 30 years. Wombats are not known to be airborne, and while the Australians can be uncouth, they are not generally cannibals. Mr. de Rougemont turned out to be a hoaxer, a Swiss man called Henri-Louis Grain who had been fired by the governor of Western Australia, Sir William Robinson, for being a rather bad butler. Mr. Grant is dead at 73. Roderick MacLean spent the last four decades in a lunatic asylum following his attempt to shoot Queen Victoria at Windsor Station. An Eton schoolboy, the son of the Australian wool magnate Sir Samuel Wilson, prevented the assassination by striking McLean with his umbrella. The would-be killer had sent Her Majesty some of his poetry, and was enraged by what he regarded as the perfunctoriness of her response. He outlived his target by 20 years, but McLean is now dead at 66. And that's The Way of the World, June 1921.
0: A hundred years from today, a
1: hundred years from today. This is the Mark Stein show. I can't remember whether I did do uh, traffic on the uh, DVP. Uh, anyway, we uh, are taking your questions and also doing our Mark Stein show features. So it's a combined Stein Show Clubland Q&A. Tim Nielsen says, Hi, Mark, you incessantly amaze me. With the breadth of your knowledge, e.g., being able to tell us what the long-forgotten word "antimacassar" means, "antimacassar," I think that came up uh, when we were serializing. What was it? Three men in a boat. Uh, a uh, was it? Was it three men in a boat a couple of summers ago? Uh, yeah, we did do a little thing on anti uh, uh Do you know what they are, anti macassars I'm not going to tell you because it's a word you should use. Uh, our functioning vocabulary is shrinking in uh, the modern world, so you should always throw in an anti-macassar uh, just to make the youth's heads explode. In that vein, I'm hoping you can enlighten me, says Tim, on another concept from the distant past. After reading about Ollie Robinson's suspension from the England cricket team, I was leafing through An old book and came across the puzzling Phrase sense of proportion Have you any idea what that Strange archaic Phrase means No I do not Tim There is no such thing anymore This guy Ollie Robinson He made his uh, test debut For the England cricket team Just a couple of days ago Right, A great thing in anyone's life He's now banned From international cricket Because Because Uh, In 2012, when he was 18 years old, he uh, issued the following tweets. He said in one tweet, my new Muslim friend is the bomb. This is a play on words because to a certain type of young person, the bomb means you're like a great thing, a cool thing or whatever. But on the other hand, if you're one of these excitable uh, Mohammedan chappies who likes to strap on the old Semtex belt, and uh, self-detonate while saying Allahu Akbar, the bomb can have a completely different kind of meaning. So it's a play on words. My new Muslim friend is the bomb. He also tweeted, I wonder if Asian people put smileys like this. Uh, And I think that's what they call an emoji, or is it? Is is that right, or is it something else? Uh, When you put a colon and then the outer part of a parenthesis, uh, so it looks like a smiley face. And instead of putting the colon for the round Western eyes, he's put two uh, dashes on top of each other. So they look more like Asian eyes. And just in case you're wondering whether that's racist, he's actually put hashtag racist next to it. Uh, so he did these tweets When he was a teenager in 2012, and he now cannot, nine years later, he is forbidden from playing international cricket because he tweeted, My new Muslim friend is the bomb. He's a great uh, cricketer, apparently, but he can't play cricket for England because he made an Islamophobic joke. Uh, Something happened I think too with some actress. I think we had a question about this today But it doesn't really matter this is this is this is the way it's going to be Now because this generation he's really an example of the generation that the first generation to grow up with social media So they're on Facebook Twitter all the time and then a few years go by and they find some tweet you made when you were 17 15 14 12 and your cricket career is over. By the way, that's thunder you can hear in the background. There's a thunderstorm going on that, uh, that may be, uh, if you're listening in uh, uh, huge speakers, if anyone still has, if you're listening on earbuds, it won't make any difference. But If you've got like the huge speakers uh, and you've got one of those 1970s stereo systems, you may have heard the thunder crackling in the background behind me. We've been doing an experimental form we are engaged with in uh, half Mark Stein Show, half Clubland Q&A. See what you make of it. See whether you like it. Uh, Just a few moments ago, we had a little bit of the Sheik of Araby in the 100 Years Ago show because that song is a hundred years old. Lots of people have done that song in the decades since, in the centuries since. Among them, among the people who performed the Sheik of Araby were the Beatles at their disastrous audition for Decca Records When you're asleep, into your tent I'll creep. Uh, I wonder if you can play for England if you tweet that. That—that uh, that is the Beatles doing uh, "Shake of Araby." Uh, that is by Ted Snyder or uh, Robert E. Smith. And uh, what's the third guy, Francis Wheeler Ted Snyder was a business partner of Irving Berlin Harry B. Smith wrote tons of operetta libretti uh, But that's the song he's best remembered for And Francis Wheeler, I know nothing about Francis Wheeler Whereas I, I know that Harry B. Smith was a great collector of antiquarian books Anyway, they wrote that 100 years ago And on vocals there, singing for the Beatles was George Harrison and that was John and Paul going nod off in the breaks and I'm not sure what that's meant to be I think they're channeling the all time greatest Australian disc jockey from Melbourne Victoria Alan Freeman the host for many years of the BBC's Pick of the Pops. Uh, At night when you're asleep, into your tent I'll creep. It's time for me to creep into my tent. And uh, please don't pull a George Harrison and come creeping into it while I'm trying to get some rest. We'll have a Sunday poem for you this Sunday. We'll also have another edition of our audio song of the week on Serenade Radio in the United Kingdom, 5.30 London time. That's 12.30 p.m. on the east coast of the Americas. And uh, it's, a, it's a corker, and I hope you'll join me for that. Stay safe, stay free.
0: Join us next time for another edition of The Mark Stein Show. The Mark Stein Show is a production of Mark Stein Enterprises and Oak Hill Media.